Welcome to Europedia Weekly SBS podcast on European affairs. Today, an election special just before the start of the Brexit negotiations. British Prime Minister Theresa May has suffered a political defeat. She's now facing a hung parliament and is politically weaker than ever before. Our Europedia panel will discuss how it came to this, what the results mean for Brexit. And we will ask, of course, how Brexit will affect the relationship with Australia. <laughs> Now, here on Europedia, we have guests from the UK. I'm the only non-British citizen in this studio today, and I'm very excited to hear more from insiders, people who know, people who perhaps voted, and people who certainly have a strong opinion. I'd like to introduce Jack Ray. Good morning. How are you? Jack, you are working in logistics. You make your money with exports, imports, and you're very, of course, interested in following the Brexit process and what it means. We'll be hearing from you in a moment. Thank you. Our other guest on the panel is uh, James Bennett. James, you've been in Australia for quite a while. You run a small business here in Australia. Um, you always stress that you're not British, but English, and uh, you are pro-Brexit. I am. G'day, Oliver. Also, we've got a couple here, uh, and that is Margaret and Archie Stennis. They're both Scottish, and uh, you are married happily yes, for now. <laughs> and um, you have um, very strong opinions on politics in UK, but in particular on your homeland, Scotland, and what that means, Brexit, the future. Yes, yep. yes, we are. I can't wait to hear your opinions. And also on the panel, Jamie Angus. He's the deputy director of the BBC World Service Group and editorial director of BBC Global News. Hi, good morning. And I'm glad to have everyone here today. But first of all, here are the first reactions from both political leaders after the election. I will now form a government. A government that can provide certainty and lead Britain forward at this critical time for our country. And I'm very, very proud of the campaign that my party has run. Our manifesto for the many, not the few. And I'm very proud of the results that are coming in all over the country tonight of people voting for hope, voting for hope for the future and turning their backs on austerity. Now, first of all, we've heard the political reactions there. What are your reactions? Maybe let's start with James. Um, when you've opened up the website and checked the latest results, what did you think? Probably as surprised as uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I think uh, uh, two weeks ago, uh, Theresa May had a 20-point lead. Um, so, yeah, this is a bit of a bold out of the blue. Um, I don't know how it would go for the Brexit negotiations. Jack? Uh, very similar. I mean, I was quite surprised with the result. Um, I didn't expect it to be a hung parliament. I mean, there was an expectation, I think, the majority would have been reduced. But I still believe the Conservative Party will be, have the overall majority. Um, but a hung parliament was definitely not on the cards. Now to our Scottish uh, guests here, what do you think today? We actually agree with the, both the gentlemen there because um, we actually thought she would be okay also. But reduced the level of the support that she had, but still have that not hung parliament today. Yeah, basically, yep. uh, I'm the same opinion. I was very yep. surprised. I thought, glancing through newspapers for the last two or three weeks, I thought she was going to have a clear majority, but obviously yeah. not. And Jamie, you make your living with news. Uh, you're a journalist, and uh, I want to say you've attended a 
event yesterday, a special event. Uh, there was an election after party, they called it. Yeah, exactly. I was trying to explain the election results to uh, to visitors down here in Melbourne. So uh, we, we did an event at the uh, at the Victoria State Parliament here. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure I was able to explain it that you know that clearly because it's been as confusing to, to us as to anyone else. And I think it's a really humbling time to be a journalist, right? Because uh, we've, we, we've been consistently wrong about a lot of election calls, <laughs> about the election of President Trump, about the Brexit vote. Uh, and probably now about this one. But I think um, what, one of the really interesting things is that there's been a huge spread in the opinion polls over the last couple of weeks. So different opinion polls have been showing uh, a 12-point lead right down to a one-point lead for Theresa May in the national poll. And there was no consensus amongst the pollsters as to what the result was going to be. And it turns out that the pollsters who gave her a very, very narrow lead in national vote share were the ones who are right. That was mainly because they estimated correctly that younger people would turn out and vote in greater numbers than they had in previous elections, or at least that's what it looks like. Um, so, you know, the British electoral system is designed in a way to produce decisive results. It historically has produced a sizable majority for one party or for the other. But interestingly, in the last few elections, so in the general election in 2015, David Cameron's party won only a very, very small majority. And in the previous election in 2010, there had to be a coalition. So there was a coalition between the Centre Party, the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives. So we're living in really interesting times when our traditional electoral model, if you like, doesn't is not functioning in the way that it has done in the past. And or as populists say, the whole system doesn't work. So not just the electoral system, but the political system. But it's a, probably a different debate. However, the result has shown how divided Britain is yet again. So we've seen it in Brexit, first of all, and now we've seen a similar result. Who is Mr. Corbyn, the comeback kid of the UK? I mean, I've, as a non-UK citizen, I've never really heard of him until a few months ago. He was made fun of a lot, even the media down here. No one took him seriously. And now such a stunning result. Um, has anyone heard from him before? I mean, you're from Britain. <laughs> What profile does he have in the UK? Not very. No, I not a high think, one. Yeah. I, I had never heard of him until Same he was here. elected. Um, and I think he went into the leadership election as a, a representative from the left. And I, I don't think he actually expected to win no. either. And I, I'm sure he didn't expect this result in the election. I think he tapped onto the, the youth vote in the sense that you know, there's been, what, seven, eight years of austerity measures by the Conservative Party yeah. in the UK. Um, he, he tapped into the fact, you know, abolishing university fees, um, giving, I guess, a little bit of hopeful for the younger generation in the UK. So he tapped into a certain psyche that that snowballed over a period of time. And once the election started, Theresa May, from my understanding, was very uh, robotic, mm -hmm. you know, just strong and stable, strong and stable. That one single message, which I believe then just did not resonate across the board. Yeah, and also, also, if you look at the amount of people who voted this time, um, there's a lot more people voted this time than there was in the Brexit vote. And I think they all got a, a rude awakening in the Brexit vote because they basically the majority of people just sat in their hands and didn't vote in the Brexit vote. And they've obviously tried to make sure that this wasn't going to happen this time. So the youth have yeah. decided to get basically up off their backsides and go and vote, which they didn't do in the Brexit vote. Because we want to stress it's not compulsory in the UK, unlike here in Australia, to vote. Yeah. But so. another interesting thing from the election, I think it was since 1920-something, it's the first time where the, the basically two parties have got over 40% of the vote. Yeah. So the UK has essentially shifted back to a two-party political scene. 
I think that's really interesting. And uh, the, the smaller parties, so the Centre Party, the Liberal Democrats, and also the Scottish Nationalists in Scotland, got squeezed quite considerably uh, in this uh, in this election. And the, as did the UK Independence Party, who had led the charge historically for many years over mm. the campaign to get Britain out of the EU in the first place. And you're absolutely right. Both the two main parties polled over 40%. But that was a big surprise for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. I think the fact that he came to power in that party in the first place was a reaction against the previous generation general election result where, uh, you know, under the leadership of Ed Miliband, who was the previous leader of the Labour Party, the party had kind of run from the centre, so there wasn't a huge ideological difference between the two main parties. They were arguing over quite a small patch of centre ground in terms of public expenditure and so on. Labour did ba badly, were perceived to have performed badly in that election. And as a result, um, the, the, the left of the party kind of captured the leadership, if you like, installed Jeremy Corbyn off the back of a wave of younger people, younger political activists joining the Labour Party, they were able to install Jeremy Corbyn as a, as a really unexpectedly and explicitly left-wing leader. Mm. And he led very much from the left with a manifesto that included things like uh, renationalising the railways, significant raises in taxation, corporation yeah. tax hikes. Um, and the sort of received wisdom during the campaign was that this really wouldn't fly with the electorate and that the party would be heavily defeated. Of course, we've seen, you know, uh, traditional wisdom was absolutely yeah. wrong. And although they <laughs> emphatically did not win the election, uh, they performed better than they have done in previous recent general elections under Jeremy Corbyn and yeah. under that policy platform. Now we've all learned of a new party that no one's heard of, I assume, outside of the UK before. DUP, yeah. no, it's the DUP. They're the Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland. And what do they stand for? Well, um, so historically, the main parties in the UK haven't contested seats in Northern Ireland, and they've had their own separate set of political parties. So, and broadly, in very general terms, they the vote there splits splits down the middle between uh, Unionists who support remaining Northern Ireland, remaining part of the United Kingdom, and Nationalists who broadly support uh, United Ireland. And the you know the the big parties are Sinn Féin on the nationalist side and the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, on the unionist side. And uh, the DUP did uh, relatively well in this election. I believe they got nine seats and therefore they hold the balance of power in that if they join together with Theresa May's Conservatives, between those two parties they have enough to form a majority on crucial votes in the House of Commons. Now, there is some historical background to this, which is that the DUP have always been aligned closely with the Conservatives because the Conservatives are an explicitly unionist party and believe key in keeping Northern Ireland in the Union, just as in mm -hmm. Scotland they believe in keeping Scotland in the Union. And uh, so there's a historical cooperation between those two parties, and it's not the first time that the DUP has uh, effectively propped up a Conservative government under the late years of John Major's government in the 1990s. The DUP supported him when he had a very, very small majority. Mm -hmm. So there is precedent for this, but as we stand now recording this, we don't know exactly what the nature of the deal will be. We don't know if it's a formal coalition. It probably won't be. It will yeah. probably be an informal deal, uh, but it opens up all kinds of interesting issues about what price the DUP might ask for in terms of what they want in Northern Ireland uh, and uh, and you know a very very interesting period ahead. I was surprised how quick she came out because in other countries Australia um, most of European countries those negotiations take days weeks in Belgium years um, <laughs> to form a coalition government but here within hours she really was ready to announce it. And that's simply because they she have enough seats um, you know the UKIP has crashed uh, the Liberal Democrats pretty much crashed. Yeah. Uh, the Greens only won one seat. So 
she really had nowhere else to go but other as, than the as DUP the kingmaker, or, or yeah. the Scottish National Party, of course. That crashed as well. Yeah. As the kingmaker, though, do we have to expect anything from the DUP? Anything that they might push forward that, that the Conservatives would never usually opt for? Well, there's an interesting subplot to all this, which yeah. is that the DUP are a very socially conservative party, reflecting their voter base, to be honest, in Northern Ireland. And they're quite socially conservative on, on issues like gay marriage. Uh, in the other part of the Union, in Scotland, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, Ruth Davis, Davidson, who's had a very good election campaign. They've picked up 13 seats in Scotland as part of the overall Conservative tally. Uh, she's in a same-sex relationship and is planning to get married to her partner. So you have a really interesting tension here where the Scottish Conservatives are pretty explicitly socially liberal. They don't want to see any kind of deal with the DUP that would roll back on Britain's kind of nationwide okay. commitment to liberal policies on LGBT rights, for example. So you can see that the Conservative and Unionist families you like is like a family of political parties now that agree on most things but not on everything so that's a really interesting possibility for what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks you're listening to europedia we are talking british election today and the results of it what they mean for australia but also of course what they mean for brexit now there was one topic that dominated the headlines um i assume in britain as well as it did in australia and that was terrorism of course we had an attack in manchester later on followed in london <coughs> just to listen back to one of the reactions i'm furious uh, these terrorists uh, deliberately targeted innocent Londoners and visitors enjoying a night out on Saturday night. They're justifying this horrific, cowardly attack with a perverse, twisted, poisonous, what they would call version of Islam. And I'm not having it. This is the month of Ramadan. I'm like many, many Muslims, fasting, we're praying, giving to charity. And for these terrorists, for these extremists to try and justify their actions, using a twisted, perverted, poisonous form of Islam. I condemn them unequivocally. The Lord Mayor or the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, there on the attacks in London. Now, how much was this result impacted by terrorism? I don't think, personally, it would have been at all. Um, I can't imagine that the British public would trust Corbyn particularly over Theresa May. If anything, I would imagine that the Labour Party is seen softer on national security. Labour really tapped into um, uh, a different aspect with the, the provision of uh, health services and things like that. So I don't think the terrorism would have had much effect at all. Conventional wisdom normally says, you know, something like that happens, it shows up the, the popularity of the, the incumbent leader. I think one of the things that probably did work against Theresa May was the attacks by Labour when she was Home Secretary. Under her watch, the police were cut by over 40,000, was it, um, over her time as Home Secretary. So I think they honed in on that too and saw that as a weakness to exploit. And I think they did it quite effectively. And I, and I don't think that they would have that to influence the, the British election. They would have that in mind because... I mean, it's not like they're going to get a candidate that is going to be favourable to their views but, the I mean, more they bomb. The idea of terrorism is probably to just you know, um, yeah. throw, throw society in tatters and then influence results no matter what. Yeah, in the UK, you're not going to get uh, this huge reaction like you get in America. Yeah. Uh, we grew up with terrorism. 
You know, we had we had the Irish. We were just talking about that this yeah. morning. We and, were brought and then up you got the Islamic the terrorism. So I think that the psyche of of Britain and the British people is slightly different, and and that's where I think that misjudgment came. I think it was interesting that uh, immediately after the London Bridge attack, the two main parties suspended campaigning for about 24 hours. But as soon as they lifted the suspension of the campaigning, they both came out and explicitly made attacks on each other's security policy. And uh, Jeremy Corbyn made a, a you know, a, a thought an interesting foreign affairs speech talking about, uh, you know, what the what the responsibility of the nation was with regard to its own foreign policy, looking to ensure a national security. And for their part, the Conservatives attacked. Labour but very, very strongly for Jeremy Corbyn's own track record, where you know he has a history of, for example, meeting representatives of Sinn Féin in the late 1980s and early 1990s at a time before the Good Friday Agreement, when they were still essentially the f- political front party for a terrorist movement, and um, the Conservative supporting newspapers and the Conservatives in. Uh, in the UK um, really, really went for Jeremy Corbyn over this quite explicitly over the last few days of the campaign. And interestingly, one of the interesting things about the election, this election result, is that doesn't seem to have decisively affected the results in in any way. And I'd agree with what's been said on this panel that it seems to me that voters actually discounted national security and terrorism in great measure in this election and seem to have decided their votes much more on the basis of um, things that affected their daily lives in schools, policy, education and so on and that seems to have worked more to Jeremy Corbyn's advantage than we might have expected. Well a compliment to the British people then that um, they are not as easily influenced by terrible events like this. Jake you've just mentioned the British psyche. Let's talk about that because this podcast is called Europedia. (laughs) As a continental European, um, we're not quite sure how you people identify yourselves. Would you, especially after the Brexit vote, would you count yourself as European? James? I mean, obviously, geographically, we're part of Europe. Um, I guess we're almost akin to, say, how the Japanese view themselves in relation to the rest of Asia. Um, like you said, I've, I, consider, I consider myself English first and then British. And then I'd probably consider myself Australian and then maybe European. Okay. So the last thing on your list, the last thing on your list is Europe. And, uh, and mine would be Scottish. I'm Scottish. That's it. Scottish End first. of story. British yeah. comes in because it's in my passport. And, and then it's Europe after that. You're wearing a blue white hat as well today. Is yeah. that <laughs> I thought I'd just sort of wear that and just... To sort of show my allegiance to Scotland. <laughs> yeah. So you two, you're here for a good reason today because we wanted to have some Scottish voices on this. <laughs> this it's, it's just very crucial. Now we've we've had a we had a referendum, and the Scottish people decided to stay, remain in the UK. Now this is all back on the table after Brexit. In your marriage, how has it impacted your marriage? You Not can- really affected us. I mean, personally speaking, I probably I would think this should remain. Um, I don't think Scotland should become independent. I think Nicola Sturgeon has to really stop talking about that and get back to the social aspects. I myself, mm. oh, I'm very pro-Scottish. I wanted independence. Um, I phoned my mate back in Scotland uh, who I thought was a certainty to vote for independence, but he was queen and country and all this kind of stuff. Um, after I've seen, I've read an awful lot of comments about Nicola Sturgeon, She's not as well liked as I thought she was. 
they basically call her the bee witch from Govan, which I didn't realize. <laughs> the, can you elaborate on that? The bee witch? No, the, the wee witch. witch. Ah, the wee witch. Small, because she's small. small witch. Wee. You wanted a Scottish accent? I've gave you. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Govan is part, Govan's part yeah, of Glasgow. Go, Govan. Yeah, well, Govan's her constituency, and I didn't realize this. I thought she was very, very popular. Yeah. Uh, but she's not, uh, as I say. What, what, what do you picture Scotland, Scotland to be like when it is independent? Obviously, it would remain with oh, the European it'd Union. It would be quite or... difficult for the first two or three years, I think. Uh, obviously, the oil's um, revenue is not there anymore. Mm. Which, And this is another reason I've been reading a wee bit more about it, that I just don't think... I mean, you also have to have your own army. I don't think they've really thought it out, to be honest with you. I think... It, uh, so they didn't I, think it through, but you still approve. No, I, I think I've just wore my uh, brave heart <laughs> on my chest, and I think maybe it'd be better to stay part of Britain. Oh, okay. I think the the result of this election probably makes another Scottish independence referendum less likely rather okay. than more likely. So uh-huh. in the run-up, Nicola Sturgeon had indicated that she wanted to hold another independence referendum yeah. in 2018 or 2019. Yeah, and uh, obviously that was tied into the idea that Britain was leaving the European Union. So one of the things that she felt might get Scots over the line to emphatically support independence would be the idea that they don't actually want to leave the EU. So remember, Scotland voted to remain in the EU yeah. and the rest of the country essentially voted to leave. So the interplay of those two issues is important politically. But I think most observers agree now that uh, given how well the Scottish Conservatives performed in Scotland in this election, mm. they're an explicitly unionist party. Uh, and that the SNP lost seats, which they were always likely to do since they'd won so very many in 2015, uh, that that probably makes a second referendum a more distant prospect mm. than it was when we went into the campaign. That makes sense, yeah. yeah. And back to you, Jamie, um, do you feel European at all? I think, I suppose, speaking personally, I think yeah. of myself as, as British, uh, and I think mm-hmm. one of the things that this raises is that uh, you know, Scot- Scottish national identity is probably often you find more you know keenly felt than English identity. Some people do identify themselves as English rather than British. Yeah. I, I don't really think of myself like that, but I don't. I suppose I probably don't think of myself primarily as European either. Not a big vote for Europe here today. We've had um, James. The last thing on his mind is being European. We have Scots who are just Scots and nothing else. Um, <laughs> We have someone from the BBC who's British, uh, first of all. Um, but we also have, Jack, you're my last hope here today on the Europedia <laughs> panel. Um, to your background, you're, you're the son of migrants who came to Britain in the 50s. Yeah, after I the believe. war. Yeah. And, um, and they have also voted for Brexit. My generation, we're, we're first generation born British, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I'm first and foremost British. It's the country of my birth. It's where I grew up. Um, I've lived in Europe. Um, I've lived in two countries in Europe. Um, so if I speak to an Italian, he'll say to me he's Italian. He won't say he's European first and foremost. Yeah. If I speak to a Spanish person, he'll say he's Spanish. I haven't. No one's ever said to me they're European. Um, yeah. I, I think you identify yourself in the country of your birth first, um, and then as sec, I think being European becomes secondary. To be to be quite honest with you. <laughs> Now, let's talk uh, the big elephant in the room. We've mentioned it before, Brexit. Uh, I've been out and about in the diaspora in uh, Melbourne and had a few talks to people and asked them what Brexit means for them, what their opinion is. And uh, here are two opinions from British people that live in Australia. 
It's already causing a lot of, I suppose, unsuredness around some of the, the markets and how they should, especially for an Australian exporter trying to get into those European markets. Uh, they want to understand how that landscape's shifting so they can put their strategy or amend their strategy accordingly. So it is a bit of an unknown. And then from a currency conversion point of view as well, how they, they price their products and how they can get uh, some stability around that. So it, it is forcing a rethink of the European strategy for Australian exporters. I think the UK should stay part of Europe. I think it's easy to do trade. For me, it's all around being in business economics. I think it's easy to do trade with Europe. I think if they pull away from that, I think it's going to be very difficult to do business outside of Europe. It'll be very difficult to do business outside of Europe. What will it mean? Any ideas, any opinions? I mean, no one really knows yet, but do we have some theories in, in the room? Well, I think people don't know. I mean, I voted for Brexit, yeah. and I've never, ever been a fan of the EU. Um, but, I mean, to go back to what, what the lady was saying, um, you know, trade with Europe, I think, is fantastic. When it first started as the, uh, I think, the Economic Coal Community or whatever it was in the Six oh, Nations, like that was great. Uh, the European community, what concerned me was when Maastricht came in, the Lisbon Agreement. You know, I objected strongly to political union. Mm. Um, that was my problem. Um, in terms of trade, even limited labour mobility, I don't have an issue with. Um, but the British people, the English people, whoever, we didn't vote for political union. And not to not not just to mention that, but a lot of the European people didn't vote for it. The French didn't vote for it. The uh, Dutch, the, the Irish, and when they got the votes wrong, they were told to vote again. Trade's one thing. Eventually, Europe will trade with Britain. There's there's no question. Britain's a, a power, um, even though it's just a small place. Uh, people will look at it as this small place, but it's always been a power, and it will always be a power. There's places down in England, villages, towns, things like that, that have lost their identity completely. By being in the EU, and you're getting run by what they say, and as he was talking basically on the legal side of things, if there's things can be overturned, uh, uh, judgments can be overturned by the EU that have been passed in Britain yeah. and Britain basically I think they've just got to the stage in life that they're fed up getting told what to do and they want to have their own autonomy and look after themselves again and, and that's what everyone does but um, this is also I think the European Union isn't that also a philosophical question isn't that also what, what does the future hold I mean do we go back to 19th century national states and, and then we've learned what happened in the 20th century because often I mean the European Union won a Nobel Peace Prize for you know it hasn't been yeah. that peaceful ever in history now if, if every country should follow the path of the UK and let's say um, leave the European Union and we dissolve the whole idea we go back to little national states we probably won't be able to compete with Asia in that form with, think, if we have 25 26 different markets I don't well, know wait, I think that is the concern you know there's just total uncertainty I think it's unclear how everything is going to work I, I think the concern is once everyone knows how it's actually all going to work I, th I still think underlying there's a fear that France or someone else may also come out and then it comes back to the question that you've just Because asked. the opposite has been the case. Now, populists have been not defeated, but they've certainly been weakened all throughout Europe ever since Brexit because uh, most European countries now see the dilemma you're in and how difficult it is actually mm. is to put but in I place. I don't think it's an either-or question. This idea that because, you know, the UK is wants to leave the EU and, you know, nationalism is reasserting itself that all of a sudden we're going to be you know trying to um, <clears throat> declare war on each other um, I, I don't think it you know is realistic but also I mean 
In terms of a philosophical question, yeah, what is the EU? Okay, is it the 10% unemployment in France? Is it the fourth bailout coming out for for Greece from the IMF? Is it the Italian banks, which are pretty much bankrupt? Um, you know, the EU is not some utopia. And it is certainly not a panacea or a mm. solution to the problems that the UK has. I don't see why we can't cooperate. I can't see why we can't be friends. And I can't see why we can't yeah, but, trade. But doesn't Britain want all the benefits? For example, the, you know, the access to the European markets, etc. However, they don't want the European but we workers. Can still, we can still go through that with the WTO. And look, I mean, I'm from a working class background. My mum's a cleaner. My dad's a van driver. Yeah. And um, it's like uh, the gentleman said over there, you know, when you've got unfettered access to markets from Eastern Europe, where, you know, in Poland, the GDP per, or GNP per person is, I don't know, $8,000 US and in the UK is 24 or whatever it is, there's obviously going to be a huge disparity and movement of people to one side of the union to the other. If it worked out that British people were going to Latvia, Estonia, or Poland, and the Spanish world, then I probably wouldn't have too much of a problem with it. But to think that all these markets, which are so completely different, can just meld hmm. together and there's going to be completely untroubled. We're back to the discussion of migration. Uh, um, and this is always a core issue, and I think it was a major issue in Britain and during the Brexit voting as well. Now, you, you're from a migrant background. What's your take, Jake? Speaking to my family, um, migration was, was an issue. Um, you know, we consider ourselves British, English. We were all born there. Um, so there, just because I, I guess we were immigrants mm. too, those concerns were there. They were at the forefront. Um, I spoke with my in-laws. My, my, my in-laws are Scottish. Um, and um, so they voted for, for Brexit. And they had the same concerns, migration, migration. And But they felt also there was a political overreach too um, but even though migration was at the forefront so one example they used was rules for example if you had a, a Polish person working in the UK uh, they were entitled to child support mm -hmm. whilst yeah. their children were still living in Poland exactly um, so so they felt these kind of instances were were not correct hmm. hence um, they voted but most of my family voted for Brexit um, and I think there was a lot of scaremongering particularly by the right wing media of course yeah. about all the floods of immigrants coming in <coughs> and all the problems because they're causing because don't, don't those immigrants the Poles and, and everyone you're talking about don't they subsidise the British wealth and yeah, the, the British of course the British you know, prosperity it's, it's almost like because you, you said to Jago you know from a you're from a migrant family just because you're from a migrant family yeah. it doesn't mean that you're going to be in any more favour for the EU than you are for Brexit if you are say I don't know a, a migrant that came over in the 1960s, 1970s, you may be competing for jobs with someone that's just come in from Poland. Mm -hmm. So it affects you just as much. It affects the price of houses, it affects services. So regardless of your background, if you're born in the UK, then you, you know, you've got an investment there. They're not going to want to see people coming in from Lithuania yeah. more than anybody else. Yeah. Exactly. Jamie, I mean, this, is, this, is, yeah. this is Britain in the 21st <laughs> century. Yeah, we're, we're talking a national state that closes its borders because they don't want to compete with foreigners. And is that the future? I don't think that's a. I don't think that's probably a fair summary of where the people who propose Brexit want to be. I think the case, uh, you know, the the, the case that, that that those campaigners made that, that won the day in the end was that actually 
you know, you asked earlier, Britain wanted a lot of the benefits without a lot of the costs. I think that's exactly what they did want. They yeah. said they wanted to, they felt that Britain would probably get access to the European market in the end uh, without having to shoulder some of the costs uh, and the, the, the perceived lack of control over, uh, over immigration, for example. And uh, though a lot of the people who supported Brexit think that that is a credible outcome from the negotiations. And uh, yeah. we, what you touched on earlier is that the reason we don't know is that we're entering a two-year period of negotiations between Britain and the, the, the remaining, you know, the EU Commission and the member states. Yeah. And we don't know what the result of that will be. Quickly listen to Theresa May once again. We will be there to negotiate the right deal. But what I have said is no deal is better than a bad deal. We have to be prepared to walk out. Theresa May, just before the election here in Europedia, we've got a number of guests and uh, we're coming to a close. However, Jamie, you as a political analyst from Britain, is it possible to have no deal? Uh, it is possible to have no deal. Uh, there is a hard Brexit option and indeed some of the people who supported the Leave campaign actually actively favour this option. Uh, where Britain simply walks away at the start of 2019. It's like a divorce where you're refusing to hand over the house. You know, you say, uh, we're not going to pay you. Uh, we've paid in historically over 40 years to the funds of the EU to build the parliament, to build the infrastructure, and the idea that we should have to pay more is uh, is ridiculous. So we're not going to pay anything. Um, we don't care if you keep us out of the single market. Off we go. We'll, as you as alluded to earlier, we'll trade on WTO terms with the European Union and countries, and we just believe that you know uh, that in the end people will want to trade with us that is an option on the table now it seems to me that quite a lot of people involved in the conservative negotiating position now don't want that hard-edged brexit to happen but it is of course an option on the table and if you're negotiating the nature of the negotiating is to threaten up until the last minute to adopt an unpalatable position just as on the other side the European Union will continue up until the last minute to yeah. say, you know, we will, you know, soak you for a large penalty payment, exit payment, uh, unless you kind of agree to exit on our terms. And we're going to have two years of this very, very difficult technical negotiation to go. Again, in Europedia, a final question uh, to my guests here. I'll start in the Scottish corner. The UK after Britain... What will it be like? What kind of country would it be like? Will it work out? Will it be a prosperous nation? Or? Yeah, I think eventually uh, there'll be two or three years where it'll be a bit hard, I think, uh, to start with, but they'll, they'll survive. Britain's a, uh, Britain as a country is a surviving country and eventually they'll get their wealth. People believe in Britain. Britain will be okay. They'll definitely survive. Okay, and uh, Scotland will be part of Britain even in the future? They probably will be. I, I reckon that's not going to change. Um, I think the euphoria of the independence vote has died, basically. I think mm. uh, the younger voter uh, is... I'm not going to say it's came to their senses because everybody's got, everybody's got an, opinion, an opinion, but I think it'll stay British. I definitely do. Yeah. James, Britain in a few years after Brexit, what country... I mean, look, there's, there's undoubtedly going to be a transitional period. Um, I mean, I remember when the referendum was coming up, there was sort of all this, the doom mongers in the media acting like the sky was going to fall in if we left, and it, and it hasn't. And, you know, yes, the pound fell, but it, it's come back up in strength again. I mean, what you've got to remember is that Britain has been a member of the EU for 43 years. We've been around for a lot longer. Our survival is not dependent on, our, on the EU. Um, it never has been. And it, and it never will be. The EU is a political construct from a top, from the top down. 
generally forced on people that I don't think have always been completely, um, what would be the word, aware of perhaps what the final project yeah. they have is in that is in mind. Which is the same situation in Britain now, because no one really knows where it's leading. Now, and that's exactly what I was going to say. Jack, I just want to stress, you make your money with exports and imports. Yep. And uh, what will the future be like? Australia and Britain, will Brexit bring them closer or will Australia, as many say at the moment, look more towards the EU because it's just a bigger market? Well, I think Australia have already kind of made it clear, they've kind of elbowed people out the way to try and get in front of the queue to to do any uh, free trade agreement with the UK. I think post this election, the way things stand, though, is I just don't think Britain are going into these negotiations, even whether it's with Australia or with the EU, in a position of strength at the moment now because of the political uncertainty we've got in the UK. Because there's no guarantee Theresa May will survive either uh, for, for this year. But I think, you know, Australia already, like I said, you know, positioning themselves to be at the front of the queue for a, for a free trade agreement. Yeah. But I think it will work to Australia's advantage more than the UK advantage, the way things stand at the moment. And uh, Jamie, you're going back to Britain soon, and do you take back some feedback maybe from Australia, very outside point of view on Brexit, on the British election. What are the statements and comments you got from Australians about the current situation? I think there's a huge amount of interest, and I'm struck by how much interest there is here mm. about our UK general election in, and, and, and about Brexit in general. Uh, I think, you know, this is my first time in Australia, so it's a, been a you know real privilege to be here and, and meet lots of Australians and talk about these these issues. And you're struck by, it's still in many ways, how how deep and uh, strong the links are between Australia and the UK. And I think that probably underpins why both the UK and Australia would like to deepen and strengthen those trade ties in the post-Brexit era. The reality, though, remains that the UK will still need to make the EU its strongest trading bloc simply because it's its proximity and the size of the market. And also Australia feels equally anchored in the Asia-Pac region now. And mm. it feels to me that Australian foreign policy priorities have shifted quite a bit, despite the kind of warm rhetoric between Australia and the UK, that there is a real imperative behind, you know, trade with China, China, Japan, and other big Asia-Pac Asia economies. So behind the warm words, there'll be a lot of kind of hard-nosed reality about a bilateral trade deal between Australia and Britain if, if we get to that point. We will follow that and hopefully cover it in a future episode of Europedia. Thanks to my guests, Jack Ray, James Bennett, Margaret and Archie Stenners, and also Jamie Angus. Thank you very much. Coming up next week on Europedia, which of course you can subscribe to on your favorite podcast format. Greece, what is the situation on the ground? We hardly hear of it anymore here in Australia. However, the people in Greece, they're still struggling. And there's another big installment due and most likely Athens won't be able to make it. We will hear from Greek experts here in Australia and some German Greeks who live in Australia. So they have a very divided opinion on the matter. Europedia again next week. Europedia.